tuned in to Shift Happens on Kootenai Co-op Radio. My name is Jeff. And I'm Anna. And this week we are continuing our conversation with Peter Fritsch, the rebel Episcopalian priest. Mm-hmm. That'll be in the second half of the show. But in the first half of the show, we're going to play tunage, as we always do. And I like to start out the music part of the show with humor. And in today's show, we're going to be playing Tim Minchin, I Love Jesus. And I don't mean to offend any of the listeners out there, but he's really good at calling a spade a shovel. And he's really good at pointing the finger at religion. And I'm hoping that you'll appreciate what it is that he's going to share. It's really easy, right? I'll set it up, don't worry. You're listening to Shift Happens on Kootenai Co-op Radio. My name is Anna. And I'm Jeff. And coming up in the second hour is the spoken word portion of the show. We will be interviewing Peter Fritsch again the rebel Episcopalian priest. Yeah, we had a really intense spiritual discussion, and I think you guys will enjoy it. At least I did. And you can always hear the show again on Sundays from 11 till 1. So tell your friends. That is, if you have any. Of course they do. Well, I know you guys are my friends, so enjoy. You're tuned in to Shift Happens on Kootenai Co-op Radio. And in today's show, we're going to continue the conversation that we had with my new BFF, Peter Fritsch, who's currently in Hungary, but is actually on his way, or maybe by now he's in the States. So, Peter, welcome back. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Anna. So in today's show, we're doing the second part of the interview that we conducted with Peter. And we didn't really get any opportunity to discuss his philosophy so much because he brought us up to speed in terms of the why he moved to Hungary and what his incredible experiences were there, especially in his love life. And so what I wanted to do in this show is, well, at the very beginning, I'd like to share just how heartening it has been for me personally to become friends with Peter. For those of you who listen to our show on a regular basis, you know that I've definitely had no problem stating my issues with religion. My background, uh, I'm, well, I almost became a man of the cloth myself. My degree is in theology, but just through life experience, I came to realize that religion, at least the way I was practicing it, was simply not for me. And I saw the skew, the us and them attitude. And unfortunately, I'm definitely getting a belly full of that situation when I look at what's going on south of the border. So anyway, I've had several conversations, Anna in the background, but Mostly the conversations have been between Peter and I. And what I wanted to do is share with you, the listeners, just how special this man is. So even though he's a man of the cloth, he's still a good guy. (laughs) How's that for an introduction there, Peter? (laughs) Yeah, even though he's a scuzzbag, he's still an okay guy. Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) So the thing that I found really empowering, I I have to say, I mean, it was Val Frazier that actually put me in touch with you, gave me your contact info, and we started the Mm -hmm. process after that. But I have to say that when she told me that you were an Episcopalian priest, my knee-jerk reaction was, why would I make contact with this person? And... Again, I'm very glad that I did because I discovered that 
you're definitely like myself. You think outside the box. You're not contained by one particular belief system. You're willing to consider all options. And to me, that's a really empowering thing because you don't stagnate, Mm -hmm. right? And you consider other people's position. I mean, my discovery when I've talked to religious people since I've gone my own way is that quite often people who are religious are willing to have a discussion with me. They'll listen to what I have to say, but it's mostly they're just being polite. And next thing you know, after I've spoke my, my piece, I've spoke my mind, they use that as the opportunity to spew their dogma at me. It's not a conversation is my mm-hmm. point. And what I've discovered in our interactions is that it really is a discussion. And so I just wanted to say at the onset here, thank you for that. And that's why I think we're going to be BFFs, at least in my opinion. My observation, uh, Uh, watching your conversations is that I believe you are helping Jeff heal a lot of the past um, issues that he has had with religion, because I do feel like it's been a, an obstacle for him to make mm-hmm. these judgments about people who are religious simply because they're religious. And you're kind of breaking him out of that box. So thank you for that. Oh, that's awesome. It's not that I've held people in that box. I've been very willing to have open discussions yeah. with religious people, even, uh, well, a, a local clergy uh, person in our community. I've tried to sit down and have discussions, but I've discovered just how closed minded these individuals are. And so, what I've always wanted okay, for many, many years, is to have a group of spiritual people, if you want to use that term, and everyone has to park their accoutrement at the door. So no symbols, no special clothes, just show up in a room at a round table. Mm. So there's no head of the table, there's no foot of the table, just everyone on equal ground discussing what is important to them and what is real. And my personal belief is, is that if you take the most spiritual people in all of these different systems, whether it's religion or, I mean, it can be atheists, but if you put these people around the table and ask them, what is it that makes a good human being? What creates a good life. I think that 99% of the people would agree on those fundamentals in spite of what their belief system is. Would you agree with that? Would I agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, um, I don't, Jeff, I don't, I don't have an agenda and I don't think that Jesus had an agenda in the terms of some kind of, Jesus didn't create a religion. He didn't create a religion at all. He basically lived a life, death and a resurrection, just like you and I live a life and a death and a resurrection and on an ongoing basis. And he, he taught and modeled faith and love. And love was specifically not just infinite, but personal love, interpersonal love. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't give a flip what a person believes. It's, it's how are they experiencing God? And I, at, or I, I use the word God kind of generically. I mean, I don't care what language you use. And I have atheistic friends, my language teacher. I love this young man. He says, I don't believe in anything. And I said, that's cool. But I tell you what, when we talk about dreams, he's always, he always wants to know about the language, the symbolic language of dreams, which is a spiritual reality. It's not a, 
not a physiological thing, it's a spiritual reality, the language of, of mythology, the language of dreams, the language of symbols. And so we talk about that, and he talks about his inner life. He doesn't like the word religion. He hates the word, and frankly, I'm not too happy. I don't care for it too much. My bishop is in Oregon. His name is Michael Hanley. He's a nice guy. And the last time I visited with him before I came to Hungary, he just shook his head and he says, Peter, you're a maverick. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you don't follow the rules. And I said, Bishop, what rules are you talking about? And he just shook his head and said, well, never mind. Never mind. See you later. Have a good time. And uh, I got home and I looked up on my because first thing I thought of I thought of was the old TV show I grew up on Maverick, you know. Oh right. And um, James Arnaz, I think, or James Arnaz. Like yeah, that. yeah, not Mel Mel yeah. Gibson, but the early the old show when I was a kid. And uh, yeah. So anyway, I looked up the word on the internet, and I I must have looked at thirty or forty dictionaries on the internet trying to figure out what the word Maverick meant, and. Um, Anyway, I decided to take it as a compliment, not with an arrogant trip on my shoulder kind of attitude, but just, see, I don't think there's a box that we have to think outside of. I really don't. I think people create boxes that they restrict themselves in, but I don't think there's a box. I mean, there is no box. There's, there's this open reality, and we get to participate in it, all of us. So anyway, I'm glad that you feel safe with me. I enjoy you and Anna very much. I think you're fun. I hope we can be friends, not just in this lifetime, but the next, you know? I mean, friendship can go on for a long time. I think we've been friends yeah. in past lifetimes there, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So can you give us a bit of your journey? Okay. I mean, you are a card-carrying Episcopalian priest with a with a affection for Jung. And so describe yeah. your journey. Yeah. What what things did you study? Okay, I, I I'll leave out a lot of detail because I know I get bumbled down in that. But basically, uh, I grew up in a home. My family, my parents went to a Methodist church. My father was an atheist. But he felt the church going was really important. Don't ask me why. I mean, don't, don't, that was his issue, not mine. My mother was a very devout Christian who was also, I think, mentally ill. Um, she um, was an extreme introvert and a very unhappy person who probably never should have been a mother. Um, she was in the first graduating class of the first school of physical therapy in the world at Columbia University in 1946. And um, a brilliant woman with a lot of ability, but she she worked a short time as a physical therapist in Honolulu and then started having a family, babies, and, and never worked outside the home. And it was just a very unhappy person. She suffered from severe diabetes and... Um, when I was about two years old, I found this out after she, she died when I was 17 from diabetes. Right. And um, she had just turned 40, 47. But I found out from my her best friend who used to live across the street that when I was two, she trained me to when she would go into, she would fall, she would fall down and pass out in an insulin or a sugar um, insulin shock. She would just go unconscious. And uh, I was trained about two years, two and a half years old, to cross the street to the neighbor's house and ring the doorbell to get help. And the neighbor would call the ambulance and take, take my mom to the hospital and they'd stabilize her. And I asked the neighbor, I was like 25 when she told me this. And I said, how often did that happen? She says that happened about probably once a month. So I have no memory of not being uh, responsible for the life of an adult. And why the hell my family did that? I mean, they were wealthy. They could have had a full-time nurse. You know, I, I don't have a clue. Uh, don't ask me. I don't know why, but that's what it was. I had an older brother who didn't get that responsibility. I did. So anyway, I grew up as a caregiver, a caretaker from 
beyond earliest memories. And um, I found refuge from that. We lived in the country, and I found refuge from that in the fields and in the forest and in a neighborhood lake where we spent summers swimming. Nature nurtured me. And I have no memories of not knowing love through nature and what I would say is the love of God through nature. I, I felt safe. I felt uh, cared about. I have to agree myself. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people experience that. And so, and that's how I survived. And uh, um, anyway, the family was church going. And then as a, in high school, um, I eventually stopped going. My parents didn't make me go. Um, but I had the typical, you know, teenage faith picture, which is, you know, I lay in bed at night and say, oh, God, you know, I got this girl. I want to date her. I want her. I want to take her to the dance. Please let her say yes, you know. Or I played football, so I would play for our our uh, football team and say, you know, God, we've got to win the game tomorrow. And if we do win, then I know you're real. If we lose, you know, you're a loser and, and there's no real God. You know, that kind of kind of teenage stuff. But when I when I left, got out of high school, and I, I, I uh, came to Europe to hitchhike, I mentioned that last time, and for three months, uh, my girlfriend at the time in California gave me a Bible, which I'd never read. And I, at the time, I read books at the very last page and read them backwards because I didn't have the patience to wait for the finale at the ending. I, I, I just... You know, I read novels and stuff for school, but I I just didn't have to pay. I always read the end of the book first and read backwards. So I, I thought, well, the Bible's the same thing, and I'll, I'll read it that way. So I started in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, and I read backwards. And I took this Bible on my hitchhiking trip, and I read it constantly. And by the time, oh, it must have been a month or two into the trip, um, uh, I was reading the gospel stories about Jesus. And the more I read the gospel stories, the more I had the sense that the guy that the stories were being written about was the same presence that I've always known when I was alone in nature and felt intimately cared for. I've always felt a presence with me, even with that horrible situation at home right? where I never felt safe. So anyway, I read the I read the gospel stories, and um, uh, there's some other cool stuff I can tell you about that. But bottom line is, I I ended up with a very deep faith in the person of Jesus, and I went back to this. You know, I got home and went to college, and I got involved in every every religious group I could find. The, the Newman Center at the Roman Catholic place and Campus Crusade for Christ and the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, uh, Gospel Outreach, which was a Pentecostal commune outfit that reached out to the kids coming out of Haight-Ashbury in Los Angeles on the drug scene. This is 1971. I lived communally in a Jesus Street commune for a few years. And, um, and we did, you know, I did street preaching and on the campus and other places and carried a big 40 pound Bible everywhere I went and scared the dickens out of people. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I really meant well, but I never bought this idea that I was in and my group was in and everybody else was out this, this black and white, awful my group is right and your group is wrong. I never bought that. I, I could never go there in my in my spirit. I always thought there's something wrong with this. Right. And even though I was surrounded with with kind of a, a Pentecostal fundamentalism, I never I embraced the spirituality and the spirit and the and the healing prayer and all the cool stuff that the Pentecostal movement brought. But I never embraced the fundamentalism and the, and the crap about you know. If you don't believe the way I believe, you go, you have some horrible afterlife. I could never buy that. And I never did. Anyway, as a young adult, I had, I started my family early and um, tried a bunch of different establishment churches and uh, 
Um, anyway, it, just, uh, it was hard. It was hard to find a institution that I could take my children to that I felt comfortable, that I felt was not just crammed with some kind of an agenda. And uh, eventually my father, who's still an atheist, said to me, you know, you might consider the Episcopal Church because there's a wide spectrum. He says there's ultra-conservative and there's ultra-liberal and there's everything in between. And basically you can, you, can, you can be who you are, I think, in some way in the Episcopal Church. You, you might check it out. And that was real, really wonderful wisdom. So at, so at so what did. age did you become a priest? I discovered the Episcopal Church when I was 31, and about three years later, I was, I, I taught classes, I started youth group, uh, I taught an ecumenical healing prayer group, I did all kinds of stuff, um, did a lot of home church things, home groups. I think it was three years later, I was um, sponsored to seminary in Berkeley, went to, went to our Episcopal Seminary in Berkeley and was ordained a priest when I was 39. Interesting. And um, so I, um, I asked my bishop when I was in seminary, I said, is there any way that I could have your permission to start a new church for people who would never go near one? And he says, what do you mean? So I told him, I said, you know, most churches are horrible. They're boring. They're, they're, um, there's no life. There's no joy. Um, it's all intellectual or whatever, and I, I, that doesn't work. I said, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of young people moving here from, this is East Sacramento up into the foothills. Auburn is where I raised my kids uh, in California. People moving there from the Bay Area and from L.A., hundreds of thousands of families. And the churches were doing nothing. And the only alternative was fundamentalist megachurches that were growing. But the mainline churches were shrinking and doing nothing. So I said, can I start our, our tradition, which honors history, which is, has a scholastic bent to it, which is intellectual, but also is deeply rooted in realistic, honest spirituality, the experience of people. And he says, well, there's no money. And if you promise not to talk to any known active or inactive Episcopalians, uh, go ahead. You got to raise your own money. You got, you can't talk to anybody from our denomination. So I said, cool. That's what I'd like to do. So that's what I did. We grew from zeros to about 500 people in five years. And we focused on young families that would never go near a church. And we just created a, a worship experience and an education experience that was fun. And our motto was, if it isn't fun, we don't do it. And uh, the Blues Brothers, Dan Aykroyd and uh, John Belushi, were our our um, icons. And on the other hand, it says, we're, we're on a mission from God. <laughs> and our mission was that God loves everybody and that uh, uh, the teachings of Jesus and the infilling of God in every person is real. And, and that's what we did. And it grew. It was a good deal. It was fun. Well, I think we should take a musical break at this point and maybe play some Blues Brothers. I think that would be the appropriate thing to, to do at this point. So we'll do that and then we'll be right back. So you're listening to Shift Happens on Kootenai Co-op Radio. My name is Jeff. And I'm Anna. And we are interviewing one more time. This is round two of the interview that we started with Peter Fritsch, my new BFF from Hungary. Well, actually, he's not from Hungary. He's from the States, but he moved to Hungary. And as we explained in the show last week, he had a whole bunch of magic happen the biggest magic was meeting his wife, who I guess they've been married, what, two years now? <laughs> yep. Keep going. Okay. All right. 
Uh, That was a skill testing question, but anyway. Uh. So as I said in the show last week, for, for those of you out there, you know that I've got some serious issues with religion. And something that has been really empowering and very healing for me is this connection that I have made with Peter Fritsch. He is a man of the cloth. I was trained to be a man of the cloth myself, but I turned away from all of that because I just couldn't handle the extreme belief that I was a part of. And I must admit, when Val Fraser, the wife of my best friend from college, when we interviewed her a few weeks ago, and all of you have listened to already, she said that I should get in touch with her friend Peter because he helped her in, I think it was some kind of a, well, it was an exorcism of some sort. And maybe you can touch on that, Peter. But anyway, I've had several discussions with Peter and he's proven to be a very warm-hearted, non-judgmental person. And I've really come to appreciate who he is. So without any further ado, all of you listeners, here is Peter Fritsch. Hello, Peter. (laughs) Hi, Jeff. Hi, Anna. How are you doing? We're doing okay. Good morning. It's nighttime here, but morning for you guys. So, yeah, actually, I'd kind of like to start the, the conversation with your connection with Val. How did you come in? to contact with her in the first place. Just trying to provide a little continuity here. Yeah, Yeah, Val Fraser. Um, She is what I call a Native American ghostbuster. Um, She lives in Cresswell, Oregon, just south of Eugene, Oregon, where I lived for 13 years. And um, I, I wrote a book, I don't know, 15 years ago, in which I had a chapter in there about praying for healing of a haunted house. There was a a young man who committed suicide in a house next to my church in Lubbock, Texas. And um, the person who lived in the house came over and asked me to, to help. And we did a, we did a quiet service and prayed for the young man that was stuck in the house, stuck between this life and the next. And, um, and it worked. The guy, moved on. And uh, anyway, I wrote about it in this book. My, the first book I wrote about healing prayer. And Valerie somehow came across it. I don't know how she found my book, but she says, here's a guy that does what I do. And um, mm-hmm. she uh, has a son who is severely autistic. And she asked me to visit with him and pray with him to see if it would help. And that, that was a, a wonderful experience. Um, and then she had a client south of Eugene, a few, couple hours, who appeared to have a haunted house. And Val had done her thing with her Native American rights several times, and it didn't seem to help. And she asked me to come down, and we checked it out together. And and that was another experience that we did together. So that's how we met. And then I, I do workshops uh, in different parts of Oregon, and she attended a couple of my workshops on the on the inner life. And we've just become good friends. We stay in touch by uh, uh, email and uh, video calls, so on, from mm-hmm. here in Hungary. We, in fact, we just mm-hmm. talked the other day. So she's a sweetheart. Really enjoy her. Yeah. So do you see dead people? I don't see dead people. Um, I've only had a few experiences where I've seen the spiritual dimension with my eyes, uh, you know, maybe five in my lifetime. But yeah, as a priest, you hear a lot of these kinds of stories from people firsthand. And I would guess that about three to seven percent of the people in the churches I've pastored have this ability. It's not unusual. Um and um, so when somebody says they see things, I, yeah, I, I don't have any trouble. I intuit the presence sometimes of either a person or especially if there's been some kind of a violent crime in a house or in a business or even on a, on a road. Um, 
I remember being asked many, many years ago to pray for a stretch of road down in Auburn, California, where a lot of accidents happened that were very bizarre, a place where accidents shouldn't happen, but they do. A lot of people had died in this one curve in a road. Right. And so I went and I prayed for the road, and I found out later from the police department that the, the, the unusual accidents stopped. Now, did, did the prayers do that? Who knows? I don't have a clue. It's just, uh, but no, I don't see, um, I don't, I don't see images, but I, many people do. It's not unusual. It's, it's no different, Jeff, than people who see auras around people. You know, uh, right. they see the spiritual light emanating from people's bodies, which is another way of describing the spiritual body that encompasses our physical body. And mm-hmm. and I've been with a lot of people as they've died in the hospital or at home. And there's lots of this kind of phenomenon uh, when people die. And it's not unusual. You get used to it as, as a priest working with life transition issues. These kind of things happen. And, and it's... Um, it's just it's just something it's part of the course it's part of part of the part of the work yeah right so i guess another spin-off question uh to that is do you actually believe in a devil um yes and no um does he have orange hair and live in the states um let me let me just think for a moment. Do I believe in a devil? I mm-hmm. I don't believe in in some kind of Star Wars duality. You know, light and dark sides of the force. The good and the bad are fighting this dual cosmic battle. No, I don't believe that. Um, right. In psychological language, Jungian psychological language, I would say that there is a reality called evil archetype or evil archetypes, which are are images that have a spiritual energy to them that are very destructive to people. Now, the, the early Christian church, based on Jewish thought in the, the three centuries before the time of Christ, based on the Persian and the Zoroastrian uh, belief in a devil, um, it, by the time of Jesus, there was there was kind of a widespread belief in many parts of Judaism of of a of a fallen angel who went by different names. And of course, in fundamentalist Christianity, they they use these biblical names: Beelzebub, the devil, Satan. But those words are all Lucifer. Yeah, I mean, but those words are all used out of context of of the, the sacred text they were used. And kind of bantered around. So I'm careful in my language about it. Do I believe that there are some aspects of autonomous evil that affects individuals and affects groups of people, collective evil? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I, I mean, um, uh, as a healer, I'm involved almost on a weekly basis in prayer for disease for mental illness for people. Um, I mean, what's happening at a collective level in the United States, um, in many, I mean, people compare what's happening in the States with what happened in Nazi Germany. And granted, there's a lot of similarities. Do we call that evil? Do we just say it's bad politics? I mean, there's different ways to talk about it. To answer your question uh, depends on what audience I'm talking to as to which language I use. Normally, I use psychological language, which is safer because it doesn't touch as many buttons or trigger as many um, abuse, spiritual abuse memories that people have from fundamentalist Christians. So uh, lots of times I'll avoid that language. Unless you're talking to people who are already believers in the Bible, correct? Because yeah, you're and, speaking well, their language. Well, not believers in the Bible, but their particular brand of using the right. Bible uh, right. in their particular way. But even then I qualify it because I try to educate people to broaden their minds. Um, I, But I definitely don't buy into this exorcism um, like the movie. I mean, the movie right. The Exorcist, You've got a priest who is battling evil as if 
the evil and God are on the same plane, the same level. Right. And this, this duality going on, that's, I think that's BS. That's, that, that's mm-hmm. not the reality that I, that I know or what I experienced as a person or, nor as a priest. I mean, when I prayed for people that have been involved in, uh, let's say black witchcraft or very, very dark aspects of occult practices, where they open themselves up to spiritual entities or archetypes and use them for the purpose of power to hurt other people. I've, I've had to pray with people that have, whose minds and, and bodies have been sickened by this kind of exposure. And, um, and I will use bib- biblical language in the prayers mm-hmm. if it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. But I'm careful. You know, I mean, you have to use common sense in, in, in the communication. Mm-hmm. Certainly with things like that. The question that I have is, what is the process? Do people actually become possessed from your viewpoint? Well, if you, if, yeah, uh, what I was going to say is that the, uh, the, the phrase possession syndrome is a well-known psychological phrase. Uh, you can go to any dictionary of psychological language uh, approved by different psychological associations. Nate, you can find the term possession syndrome. Um, what, did the, what does that mean? Uh, usually it means a loss of personality and a, a type of uh, takeover of some aspect of the person's personality. But again, when you're talking about schizophrenia or other kinds of mental illness, uh, many of these things are biologically determined. They're, they're mm-hmm. genetic. And so just to label them a spiritual problem is, is unwise unless there is a collective um, – I mean, I work with medical doctors, psychologists, clinical social workers, and um, people that know about mental illness and how it can heal uh, from a very objective point of view. I don't just, I mean, I get invited in by my my former bishops and um, psychologists where they reach a place where they realize there's something spiritual going on with this person and it needs the additional prayers of a person who understands this to combine with the medical and psychiatric help the person is getting. And so we work as a team to bring healing to the person and it works. I mean, it's, it's, um, it works with that approach. It's not black and white. It's, it's, it's a multicolored approach to healing. Um, so how well accepted is your particular practice by those in the more, mainstream medical systems like in psychology or in just medicine um, in general it totally depends on their training and their background right um i have worked with i, I remember uh, a psychologist in auburn california who had a he basically did cognitive therapy and he had a behavioral modification approach to almost everything i mean he was very much like a bf skinner fan and um, he referred me to a woman that he was working with in a convalescent hospital um, who was unresponsive unless the psychologist put a Bible under her bed. And when he put a Bible under her bed, she, she would get animated and talked. And she had no idea the Bible was being placed under the bed. Um, hmm. He asked me to come in and, and see if there's anything I could do because he sensed that there was there was something either in her memory or some kind of psychic connection with the Bible with this woman that that brought this this agitation to her when the Bible was in her presence, unknown to her, but in her presence. And so we, you know, he and I talked about it and I did my thing and uh in that particular case, the behavior has never changed. Uh, it's a mystery, you know. But in it depends on on the professional's background and their worldview. And many many good psychologists and psychiatrists are very open to the spiritual dimension. The idea that they're all uh, anti spirituality is not true, especially here in Europe. Um, and people with with good training. I mean, Carl Jung was was a medical doctor, 
He's a psychiatrist, but he recognized the reality of the spiritual dimension. And, and he practiced it. He was a deeply spiritual man. And most of his colleagues were. So anyway, I'm, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but uh, it depends on the person's background. And yeah. Um, I'm just asking about your workshops. You travel and teach workshops mm -hmm. to help people connect with their spiritual lives. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What, and you use some of your Jungian uh, philosophy. Can you mm -hmm. kind of give us an idea of what those workshops entail? Sure, sure. Thanks for asking. Um, <clears throat> I have been working with Jungian analyst and also an, an Episcopal priest on dream work. In other words, understanding the language of dreams, which, by the way, is an ancient Christian spiritual practice that fell fell away um, in the Christian church by the in the Western church by the end of the sixth century, um, but never disappeared in Eastern Orthodox Christianity. But anyway, I, one of the primary workshops I teach is helping people understand the language of their dreams, the importance of dreaming, um, whether they are just interested from a psychological point of view or from, from deepening their spirituality. The, the, every culture in the world except Western Europe and North America pretty much Every other culture but those two places pretty much believe that the dream is a way that God speaks to us, that the dream is a gift from the spiritual dimension to us on a daily basis. Um, there's nothing new about this, but in the Western world, um, which was strongly influenced by Western Christianity, there is this dearth of knowledge and understanding about dream work. So I, I do workshops where I give a history of how dream work was a part of um, other, is, is a part of other cultures and was a part of Western culture originally a couple thousand years ago and what happened to it and why it, how it was revised primarily through um, Freud and Jung, but many, many other people. Um, Abraham Lincoln is a good example of someone who wrote down his dreams and, and paid attention to them because he believed that God gave him guidance in those dreams. And there are many, many examples in history, not just religious people. And um, so anyway, I, I give a background, give a scholastic background to dream work and then I talked about the practicalities of how to remember dreams, how to read different ways to record them. And then I explained the, the language of symbols that the dream images represent and how that depends upon a person's cultural background, their racial background, what part of the world they live in and come from, that the images, the symbols of the images are interpreted in many different ways. Many different ways. Um, for instance, the sun and the moon. Uh, most people, when they think of the sun, they think of it as a masculine energy symbol and the moon as reflected light or feminine energy symbol. Well, in Germany and in Japan, it's the opposite. The moon is the masculine and the sun is the feminine. And so depending on... If someone has a dream about sunlight or moonlight, uh, depending on their cultural background, it can make a huge difference in how they understand the dream, what it might be saying to them. So I go, I go over these things, and it's normally a one to a three-day workshop, kind of like mathematics. I build on the basic foundation and then take it from there. And usually work with people in the group. They share dreams with the group, and we as a group talk about it. Um, but people go away with an understanding of how to use scholastic reference materials versus your late, latest uh, fad dream dictionary, which is pretty much a waste of time and money. How to use scholastic reference materials to understand traditional world symbols, and then how those symbols 
can be applied to the images and dreams in understanding the language of dream, which is a symbolic language. So, and there's different levels of symbolism that a person can learn and understand. And it's, it's not difficult to understand one's own dreams with, with some practice. And it's a great way of not only listening to God, but connecting with one's own soul. Because it's, it's the innermost part of our heart and our soul that the dream is speaking from. And it provides a lot of self-understanding and connection for people. So that's one example. I'm actually reading uh, some Seth right now, uh, mm-hmm. The Eternal Validity of the Soul. And the way that he describes dreams is basically reconnecting with your whole self or your higher self or whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it and mm-hmm. having the opportunity to connect to that wisdom. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, Carl Jung, Carl Jung used the term collective unconscious to talk about a, you can, you can think of it as a vast spiritual database of collected memories and information from the human race from all time. And he came up with that phrase when, because of his world travels, he visited Africa, he visited Taos Pueblo in Taos, New Mexico. He went all over the world in his travels and he would talk with the shamans and the, and the uh, chief leaders of the country, both uh, of the cultures, both men and women, and asked them about their dream work. And what he discovered is that there is a pattern a universal pattern of types of images that show up in people all over the world that they, the people then can understand and interpret in the in, in very similar ways. Um, for instance, many people dream of an old man or an old woman who is it's called the old man or old woman archetype. And this image in the dream is a, is a wisdom figure. And it, it's basically uh, a visual image of the part of, of the dreamer that is wise. It's, it's their wisdom person or their source of wisdom. Uh, usually it's ancient. The person looks elderly, has uh, lots of lines on their face, white hair and gray hair, whatever. Um, and this is found in every culture all over the world. I mean, I have a group of Chinese young women who lived with my family in Oregon over the years while they did a program at University of Oregon. And these young women were raised uh, in communism, and almost all of them are atheistic. But they have remarkable dreams, and they would share their dreams with me, and they dream of the old woman archetype or the old man archetype. And um, so there's this universal knowledge, and it's both collective in terms of a collective unconscious, and it's also very individualized, as you were saying. The person connects with their own higher self, which uh, is, is a psychological way of talking about, in the Christian language, the Christ within. Uh, the higher self is, uh, Wayne Dyer would say that the, the Christ within is the higher self. And um, there's different language for talking about the same reality. So that's one example of workshops. Uh, another way I, another one I really enjoy doing, and I hope to do in San Diego, is I encourage people to come, bringing their favorite childhood story. It might be a fairy tale. It might be uh, for young people. It might be a video like Beauty and the Beast or The Lion King. Something that really touched them in early childhood that uh, moved them deeply and comforted them or gave them guidance. And uh, people my age, I'm 65, I, I read fairy tales, Grimm's fairy tales and Pinocchio and stories like that. And um, so people bring a copy or several copies of their childhood story. And then as a group, we go through and look at the archetypal images in the story and the archetypal story itself as it unfolds, because fairy tales and stories like this are very similar to dreams. And what happens by asking people to bring their favorite story is self-discovery. They realize at deeper levels 
what their spiritual journey really is, what their story is, because we are attracted in childhood to stories that tell our story. And it's a, it's a marvelous interactive workshop that I love to do. Uh, it's a lot of fun. You mentioned the Grimm's for fairy tales and what, mm-hmm. something that has struck me very much about the older tales that that's kind of been cleaned up in the modern tales is that there was actually a, a very dark aspect to many of those, you mm-hmm. know, the eating of children and uh, the oh, tempting. Yeah. And do you think that there is a a real role for that, uh, the, the grim type fairy tale story Absolutely. for children? Absolutely. Um, all of us have a very dark side and children are very aware of it. Um, not only of their own dark side, but especially the dark side of their uh, authority figures, their teachers and their parents, especially. Um, And stories put in language or in prepositional phrases what the children intuitively feel and experience. And um, to remove the dark aspects of those stories, I think, is a great disservice to children. Um, now I'm not a big fan of little kids watching movies like Silence of the Lambs and things like that. Um, because I think especially the visual audio stimulus of really gross stuff can be very damaging to a sensitive child's psyche. Um, and, and so I'm not saying anything goes, but when you're talking about reading stories, the children know it's a story. And, of course, it depends on what age they are, but they understand that they're stories. But if we make them Harvey Milk Toasts, you know, just we just water them down. Um, that's perhaps not the right phrase. I shouldn't say Harvey Milk Toast. What I'm trying to say is if, if we melt down the stories and make them very vanilla, we do the kids a disservice because that's not life. And that's not what children experience. Children experience terror. They experience nightmares. They experience insecurity and fear. They hear their parents talking about how they're going to pay the bills. They hear their parents talking about divorce. I mean, all these things are terrifying to kids. And the stories help give the kids a reference point to let them know uh, what reality is. It gives them a reality check. And, it, and the stories can be a kind of witness to the children that the children are not going crazy. You know, in other words, the children have a truth that they're experiencing and the stories can be a witness to that truth, often in a family where truth is not practiced. It's probably why they like uh, movies or books like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or whatever, Mm -hmm. because the drama is really intense. But at the end, they know that it's just fiction, that everything is okay in the end. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'll give you a brief example. My favorite childhood story was called The Tinderbox, and it was a grim fairy tale. And it's a story of a soldier returning from war, and he comes across, he, he's poor, his uniform is tattered, and he comes across a witch in the forest, and she's an old hag witch, and uh, she asks him to climb into the hole in a tree trunk explaining to him that he can go down inside the tree and he'll find a chamber down there with three doors. And in each of the doors is a different room. The first door has copper, has a chest full of copper coins. The second has silver coins and the third has gold coins. But on top of each chest sits a dog with giant eyes. But if he would take her apron that she gives him and goes down into the tree and puts the apron on the floor, the dog will come and sit on it and he'll be safe to be able to open the chest and take, take the money out. So he does. She lets him down with a rope into the tree and he goes down below and he experiences all that. Um, and when she, he comes back with a bunch of the money, she says, there's a tinder box. There's a little flint metal box that makes a spark. And I want you to bring that and give it to me. And so he brings it up and he says, why do you want it? She says, that's none of your business. And he says, you better tell me why you want this. Or I'm going to cut your head off. She says, no, that's none of your business. So he goes ahead and cuts her head off, cuts her into a million little pieces. 
takes his money and the tinderbox and goes on his way. Anyway, that's a, a very dramatic, gory story. And that was my favorite story. Well, I didn't know until I was in my 30s that why that story spoke to me, but it had to do with um, growing up in a home with a mentally ill mother who was a witch a lot of the times in terms of personality and um, unpredictable behavior, uh, very abusive, verbally and otherwise. And uh, the deep insecurity I felt and the story, the story is my story. And, and I, I could take hours to talk about it and I won't. But anyway, this is a, another fascinating workshop that helped people understand their own journey, which is so important because each of our journeys are different and unique. So anyway, those are a couple examples, but I have about 25 topics that I do, but each one is designed to help a person explore their inner life and deepen their trust and ability to receive the love of God, however they perceive and experience God. So that's, that's my focus. Very interesting. I think we should take a break at this point. We've been going for quite okay. a while. And right. once we come back, we'll continue and finish up. So thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to Shift Happens on Kootenai Co-op Radio. My name is Jeff. And I'm Anna. And we're interviewing Peter Fritsch. And we'll be back. Okay, and we're back. You're listening to Shift Happens. My name is Anna. And I'm Jeff. And we're talking to Peter Fritsch, who is an Episcopalian priest currently living in Hungary and about to move back to the U.S. Welcome back, Peter. Thank you. So I'd like to wrap up with making sure that we give people an opportunity to hear a little bit more about your writing and mm -hmm. your various services. And uh, just to let people know that they can contact you if anybody mm -hmm. wants. To. I would love to see you come up here for a workshop for sure. Mm -hmm. So if we get interest in that, we'll certainly be open to organizing it. And um, to let the audience know that they can contact us at contact.shifthappens at gmail.com and we can put people in touch with you or they can come to our website shifthappens.media and we will create a, a page for today's interview and include your contact information. But before we wrap it up, please, Peter, um, tell us more about the books that you've written. Oh, thank you, Anna. Um, the first book I wrote is a very, very unusual book. Um, it's called uh, It's called A Moment of Great Power, Sacramental Prayer and Generational Healing. I learned from an English psychiatrist who works with two different dioceses in the Church of England, um, praying for healing of mental illness and physical illness, along with the medical, obviously the medical part as a psychiatrist and as a medical doctor. And what he learned was that sometimes it was very helpful for people to pray for, their, for the healing of their family tree. And I read a book he wrote, and then I began to do my own research, and then I experimented, and I found that this was a very real, viable way of bringing healing for a lot of people. And so I, I put the, after doing two or three hundred services, uh, private prayer services with people, with their medical doctor, with their counselor, with a friend perhaps, um, and praying for the healing of their family trees. We saw some remarkable things happen. So anyway, I wrote a book about this. Um, it's unusual. It'll never be a bestseller, but that's fine. And it can be, um, all of my books are available on Amazon.com. The second book I wrote is called Dreams, a, a Spiritual Guide to Healing and Wholeness, which is basically written for any seeker. It's, it's not written from a Christian point of view. It's written from basically anyone open to the spiritual life. And um, it's about dream work and how one can connect it deeper ways with themselves and with God, however they name or experience God, uh, through understanding their dreams. And then um, last year, I published a book called Hungary, 
Finding a Place to Call Home, which is a, a really fun read about the first um, several years that I was looking for a place to live in Europe and how I decided on Hungary, how I came three different trips to explore the country and made friends. Uh, before I moved here. And uh, that is part one. I'm writing part two now, which is my first year here um, learning the language or trying to learn the language. Um, All the various challenges of living in a totally different culture and not speaking the language. It's it's a fun book to read. I hope to get that done by June. And then there'll be a part three, which is uh, about the love story between my wife, Monica, and I, uh, how we came together, what our life, the, all the challenges. I mean, I didn't speak Hungarian. She didn't speak English. Uh, she knew a little bit of English. But we had a lot of, a lot of obstacles to our relationship, but at a very deep level, we knew we were soulmates. And it's, it's a beautiful story. So I'm enjoying writing that. I'm also currently writing a book about the search for the Holy Grail as a way to talk about the nature of the soul and how the soul gets wounded and how it can heal um, using Parsifal and and the search for the Holy Grail as a framework to talk about how the soul is able to integrate opposites and bring forth new vitality and life through that integration. Uh, the only other thing I would mention is that I do private one-on-one spiritual direction, which is a form of counseling with a focus on helping people deepen their relationship with God. And again, I don't tell them what to think or what to believe. I simply take where a person is at and help them go deeper to understand their own experience to make it so that, so that it's not about me. It's about them developing their own spirituality however they want. To, to go with that. And I often use dream work as one of the ways to help them connect in that way. And I work with people like we're talking right now with, over the computer with video calls. And I work with people all over the world right now. I have a lady in Australia and Ireland and um, Canada. And most of my clients are in the United States where I've done workshops. So that, that's what I do. Thank you for asking. So are you looking forward to going back to the States? I don't. The phrase going back doesn't, doesn't ring true for me, Jeff. I, I feel like I'm a global person. Living in Europe, you don't get us. The, the European Union is, is its own entity. And I think of myself as, a, as an American European. Um, the U.S. is a mess right now. And you know, do I want to go back and be part of Trump land? No. Do I feel a sense of call to live in San Diego for the various things that we talked about and to do the work that I'm doing, which which helps people deal with Trump land? Um, the kind of work I do uh, and, and the spiritual direction work I'm doing it, it help people deal with the trauma that they're going through and they're experiencing because I think there'll be, there will be a rebirth of democracy in my country. It may not be in my lifetime. I hope it is. But uh, it's a tough time for the United States right now. But uh, Southern California is a place I haven't done much work and I'm looking forward to building relationships there. And so I'm very, yeah, I, I want to put my foot and feet in the Pacific Ocean every night. Monica and I are going to walk to the beach and we're going to live in Ocean Beach, which is right on the Pacific. And um yeah, that's that's. I'm really looking forward to that very much. It sounds lovely, yeah, and the, the reality is that we don't need lighthouses when there are no storms on the horizon, right? So we're uh, often called to go to places where it's maybe not a smooth sailing. Well, the story of the Garden of Eden is a beautiful story because it sums up how I'm feeling about all of this. We start off in this mandala of the garden, right? And it's we're innocent, we're naive. And then we partake of knowledge. And then we get kicked out. And we have to go out and appropriate that knowledge in everyday living. And then somewhere in the second half or the last third of life, we have the opportunity. You remember what was placed at the garden, at the entrance to the garden when God kicked Adam and Eve out, which I think was mean, but he kicked them out. What was placed at the entrance was a flaming sword that rotates. 
yeah. a, a light. Uh, the image was a sword, but it's it's on fire, and it rotates like a lighthouse. And I think that's one of the reasons we use that imagery on a, of a lighthouse. Uh, because it shows us the way back to the garden so that we can come back to what we originally knew and know that we knew as children, but without the naivety, with, with full consciousness. And we, we come back to the garden in wholeness and discover who we've always been and always, always will be and, and find that innate joy. Uh, and that's how I feel about the move. To the states, it's in three years when Monica has her citizenship. Then we'll decide what we're going to do next. I mean, we don't know. We might, we we may move to another place. We don't know. I think you need to move to Canada, Peter. <laughs> yeah, we thought about it. Except it's cold. I keep thinking how cold it is in Canada. No, it isn't. Depends <laughs> on where you are. Our winters are hovering around zero, and our summers oh, are between 30 and 35 degrees Celsius. So that's like around 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, it's a nice summer. And that's what we have here. But the older I get, the more I I don't handle the ice and the snow and the the freezing cold. I wouldn't mind. What I like about San Diego is it's got the warm climate in Baja, California, but it doesn't have the tropic humidity that something like the Caribbean does. So who knows? I mean... Who knows? In three years, maybe we'll be, we'll be wanting to go hike in the mountains full time. Who knows? We'll see. Mm-hmm. I know we're definitely going to come up and see you guys. That's going to be fun. Well, we you look forward is. to that. I think we have to bring this interview to an end, Peter. Unfortunately, we could yeah. go for another few hours, but. Oh, it's been yeah. so much fun. And thank you. Thank you for this visit and the opportunity. It's, it's, it's really been a joy to me. Thank you. It's been a joy meeting and talking to you, Peter. So anyway, we've been interviewing Peter Fritsch, who will no longer be of Hungary. He'll be, well, maybe Hungary in San Diego. (laughs) That sounds like a movie. (laughs) Anyway, so we will talk again. I, I think who you are and what you have to offer would be appreciated by our listeners. So if you're open to it, I think we should do this on an ongoing basis. Oh, that would be a blast. I would love it. I would it. really like to explore the uh, idea of healing your ancestry because that's something that I've been working on for a while. Oh, and cool. I also yeah. I also love the idea of exploring your child traumas and really allowing your child to resolve through fairy tales. That that sounds like a, a really f- fun exercise. It is. So anyway, thank you. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll cut this off at this point. Uh, Again, I mean, we're just looking at each other and saying, yeah, we could do this for another two hours. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) we'll do this again. Love you guys. Take care. We love you too. You've been listening to Shift Happens on Kootenai Co-op Radio. My name is Jeff. And I'm Anna. And if you'd like to hear re-airs of this show, you can listen on Sundays from 11 till 1. Or you can always find our podcasts on our website, shifthappens.media, or on our page on the kootenaicoopradio.com site. So we thank our regular listeners for tuning in and supporting us and for supporting the station. And again, you're listening to CJLY, broadcasting out of Nelson, B.C. Enjoy the rest of your week.